what's going on. Thank you for tuning in. It's Maddie and Ethan back again for another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. Yes. And Ethan and I are so excited today to talk about something that uh, makes us think a little bit. And I think it'll be a fun topic for you guys to all enjoy as well. And that is to blend or not to blend. We hope you enjoy. So Ethan, on this podcast, I know we've mentioned a few times that we're in tasting groups. Yeah. We are constantly tasting wines. I mean, if anyone ever listened to that trivia thing of like, what am I drinking right now? <laughs> uh, they know that you and I appreciate a lot of beverages. Um, and anyway, so we're in tasting group. And the other day you did one and I thought it was just really interesting. And I want to do more like this. And I think I want to share your perspective with everyone else as well when we're doing these tastings. Um whatever everyone, what Ethan did, he had a blind tasting of three white wines and they were all the exact same producer from the same exact vintage. Um, they were all Chablis. And so that means hundred percent Chardonnay. However, there was the regional, the Chablis AOP. There was the premier crew. Um, and then there was the grand crew. And so it was a beautiful flight and it was just really cool to see side by sides of all these wines. Absolutely. And there's, you know, when we're talking about tasting wine. There's a lot of different ways that folks, you can interpret this. If you're studying for an exam, you want to become a sommelier sometime, or you're trying to take another organization or get another certification that requires a tasting portion. Of course, tasting is almost like going to the gym. You need to basically train your palate and your nose to understand classic styles and classic wines from around the world. But you could also taste wine just because you want to know more about the wines that you like to enjoy. You know, maybe there's one style of wine that you like. Well, go taste other wines that you've read about that are in a similar style, and maybe you'll start loving that style of wine. But there's so many different ways you can do tasting. So referring back to the one that Madison was talking about, same wine from the same producer, same vintage, with different quality levels. And mm-hmm. what I was trying to show my tasting group is what they're trying to achieve in each wine. Because there was a significant difference in price. There was a $30 bottle, there was a $60 bottle, and then there was a $110 bottle. A significant difference of the same grape, almost made in the same way. There was different treatments to each quality level, but it also shows why these classifications of Premier Cru and Grand Cru exist. It definitely does change the characteristic and the quality of the wine, there was, a, although they were great, all of them, there was a substantial difference between the Grand Cru Chablis, the $110 one, and just the generic Chablis, the $30 one. Sure, sure. And I think, I mean, for, for most folks out there, they're, they're just grabbing a bottle and they're just <laughs> going to just drink it with dinner that night or something. So probably not having the opportunity to do something like this. But if you have a group of people, everyone's willing to go in on it. Um, I mean, doing something like this was very educational because now we actually understand really the differences in the regional levels, um, or like the appellational levels, but this goes beyond just Chablis. I mean, we can recreate this tasting in so many other wine regions. For instance, we can go to, let's say the Northern Rhone, right? Yeah. They produce a lot of Syrah in Northern Rhone, pretty much solely Syrah for the red wine. Um, you could have a Cornas, you could have a St. Joseph, you could have a Cote Roti, Hermitage, if you're feeling 
Feeling good. Uh, <laughs> but no, but it's, uh, I think this is a great way to do side-by-sides for different regions. The same style of wine, maybe someone, uh, maybe they added a little Viognier, which, hey, that's a little like precursor into our blending <laughs> seminar here. Um, either way, that's a great side-by-side comparison. Absolutely. And I think that's how we really learn because if you're just continually just tasting one wine at a time, I mean, for me personally, I don't know if I can really confidently call some of these different Northern Rhone appellations. Of course, producers are always going to have their touch, but by continually doing side-by-sides, that's when you really start finding the nuances in these wines rather than just being like, oh yeah, of course this is raw, which that's great if you can call that, but really seeing that sense of place in these wines is really special. Oh, I absolutely agree. And you know, and if you're just a, a general wine consumer and you just love wine, you know, tasting with friends, tasting with your neighbors, tasting with your husband or wife, if your kids are old enough, tasting with them <laughs> and tasting different wines or the same wine made from different people or the same wine made from the same person but from different vintages will help you expand your horizons, help you understand why you like it. You don't need to become a wine professional if you just love wine, but it helps you understand more about what you are consuming and makes you love, just love it more by diving even deeper. Now, if you are a professional in this industry, it's almost like working in a kitchen. You know, I've worked in the restaurant industry for almost a decade and I was always a front of the house person because I don't know if you all notice, I enjoy talking more than I enjoy working. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's the podcast. Yes. But, you know, I always thought of myself as as a good waiter. I became an exceptional waiter after working in the kitchen for a year. Because I understood what in what what into every single dish that I was then selling. So that can be the same thing when you're tasting wine. If you're working sales and you sell wine, you I hope you've tasted every wine that you're selling because that's the only way you can truly understand it. You can write you can read spec sheets all day long. Read the spec sheet, but then also taste it at the same time. So you're understanding what is going on in that glass. It'll make you better at what you do for a living, regardless mm-hmm. of you're a salesperson, wine writer, psalm, etc. Yeah, and shoot, I mean, it's fun, right? At the end of the day, it's wine. So, I mean, what's not to love? Uh, and actually, you know, it was, I really appreciated that teaching too, because um, I mean, although I do love it, um, I don't typically have Grand, Cru- Grand Cru Chablis all too often. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, no, so it was great. But also, I did realize that, you know, I really just liked that basic Chablis as well, just the Chablis AOP. So that that's kind of reassuring to me too. It's like, okay, of course, you know, a special occasion, getting that green crew uh, for whatever it might be. Absolutely wonderful. However, for a fraction of the price, I'm still going to be really happy. And also that's another great example of why you should have more people you taste with. Make <laughs> sure. it a whole thing. Yeah. I mean, after we had these Chablis, we we're all hanging out in my kitchen. We opened another couple of bottles of wine. We were snacking on some focaccia bread. It was it was phenomenal. But having more people means that they're all throwing in to enjoy these wines with you and to taste these wines and learn together. Mm-hmm. You can actually try things that are a lot more expensive. I'm not going out and buying $110 bottles of Chablis or any wine all the time. But when I have seven other people at my house and they're all thrown in to do it, I'll do that every week. Well, I was pretty excited. I, so for, before when Ethan's getting everything set up for the tasting, um, I brought a bottle just to enjoy in the meantime. And I was pretty excited. I thought I would be happy about it. 
Uh, I think I got like, oh, uh, thank you, Maddie, um, because <laughs> the second that Ethan uh, displayed that he had a Grand Cru Chablis, well, that was the end of, oh, that Riesling that Maddie brought. I think that was left at the front door with the, I don't even know how much in there. It was a good Riesling, don't get me wrong, but uh, that Grand Cru Chablis was, uh, was something else. You know, I, I noted on the producer that you brought. I was like, oh, that's a pretty awesome producer. Thanks, Maddie. Anyway, there's some Grand Cru Chablis over here, guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Funny. So not bad for a Thursday. I'll say that much. So I want to talk about the guidelines, too. And these are, folks, this isn't something that's set in stone. This is just simply advice from two people that love to learn about wine and to taste wine on a regular basis to learn more because we love this and this is what we do for a living. But if you were to start a tasting group, Let's say you want to get into blind tasting because you saw a movie and these people are calling these wines by the grape and the blends and the, the vintage and the region. Well, you can do that too. But first, you have to start with perimeters. So you need to understand, okay, this is a list of wines that I want to know because there are a lot of different wines made on planet Earth. And although there's now wines made in every state in the United States— most likely, you can get the best taster you'll ever meet, and you could pour them on a red blend from where I'm from in Maryland, and nothing against Maryland wine. Most likely, that blind taster is not going to be able to call the region Maryland because it's not one of the classic regions. However, you can set the parameters yourself of what that's going to be. So if you have a Chardonnay, it can be anybody that brings a Chardonnay. It could be from Chablis, from the Cote d'Orin Burgundy, or it could be from... California. You set your own perimeters. Of course, you're going to have a group. Hopefully, they show up on a consistent level and uh, they all pitch in so you can afford some fun stuff. But you got to do your research on the wines as well. Then you could do different types of tastings. Of course, you can just do a straight up blind tasting where either everybody brings a bottle, it's wrapped up in a paper bag or wrapped up in tinfoil, and everybody gets a turn to pour their wine and everybody has to guess what it is. Or you can present all the bottles and do tastings of just trying to understand different styles. Maybe I brought a Shiraz and Maddie brought a Syrah. We're going to taste them next to each other to understand the differences because they're the same grape made in a different area, made in a completely different way. You can also do horizontal tastings of the same wine, but different producers. Mm -hmm. so Cab 2016 Napa Valley. Everybody brings a bottle of 2016 Napa Valley Cabernet and understanding the differences with that. You could also do vertical tastings. Now, this could cost a little bit more money, but doing 2010 versus a 2011 versus a 2012 of, again, a Napa cab. So many different ways to understand winemaking styles, vintages and how the weather affected it, and just how the producer affects the wine as well. There's so many different ways to taste wine. I mean, I feel like every week we're coming up with a new little twist on it. We're just having fun with it. Um, you know, obviously there's exams and whatnot that we have with blind tasting, but at the end of the day... Have fun with it, y'all. It's fun. You just try it. It's a game, right? You know, it's, you know, it's, and whenever you, whenever you get it wrong, honestly, I, I, I get it wrong more times than I get it right. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think anything of that. Of course, if you get them, if you nail them all, I mean, I, hey, more power to you. That's always feels really great. But you learn so much every time you get it wrong. Like, ah, oh, dang it. Like, of course that was a Chinon. It was so stinky, so bready. What I thought was, you know, like maybe black pepper and a Syrah. No, that was actually this like green pyrazines. Uh, that was a Cabernet Franc from Chinon. So just like that, I learned my lesson and uh, hopefully I'll get it better next time. Yeah, the more you get wrong, honestly, is the more you learn. It, it's uh, definitely um, a humbling experience to say the least, especially if you're going for you know, some kind of certification. But 
a lot of times I, I do truly enjoy getting it wrong because I understand that next time I'm going to try my best to comprehend what I'm trying, to, what I'm smelling and what I'm tasting and whatnot. But again, like Madison said, just have fun. I mean, yesterday with this Chablis tasting, although it was a standard tasting and it was uh, it seemed pretty challenging, I did ask everybody to write as much as I can and try to write like a romantic poem about these wines. It's just fun. Have fun with it. I did not it. take part in that. You did not, but you did a good job calling the wines too. <laughs> so again, again, if you're not going for any kind of certification, you know, let's say you love Chardonnay. You know what? Go get Chardonnays from other places around the country, around the world. Taste them next to the Chardonnay that you like. You might hate it, but you know what you're learning. Or look up different wines that are similar to Chardonnay. Get those and taste them next to the Chardonnay that you like. You might find something you absolutely love, or you might just reassure yourself that Chardonnay is your wine. Again, regardless of what status you are in this wine industry, from a wine lover to a wine professional, there are many different ways that you can learn and enjoy yourself by tasting. So the options are endless. And you guys can probably imagine that Ethan and I would sit here for, I don't even know how long it's been, but a lot longer talking about tasting because, again, that's what we do. So, uh, Ethan, let's get into today's subject and that is to blend or not to blend. And folks, that is referring to the wine making process. Um, are we blending grapes into the final wine or is it just going to be a single variety? Want to hear a fun fact? Let's hear it. Most wines that you've had have most likely have been a blend. You know, I would love to know the actual percentage. It's probably very hard to tell, but yeah, that is very true. It's very, I'm sure it's a very high number. Because there, it, there's not a lot of regulations of what actually you know, qualifies as a blend. So and that's why we wanted to get into this. It's a very unique process, and that's why there's so many different wines found on this planet. You know, there could be 10,000 Cabernet Sauvignons made in California. We know here in Napa Valley, there's 450 producers. I guarantee every single one of them makes a Cabernet. You could put them all next to each other. They all might be very similar, but there's going to be differences. A lot of it has to do with, of course, the viticulture and the winemaking too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the blend. And the first thing that you need to start off with understanding is that there are laws. So you look at Cabernet Sauvignon, you might love Cabernet Sauvignon, but it only has to be 75% Cabernet Sauvignon if it's made in California. Yeah. So whatever the winemaker does after that, they can add Merlot, Malbec, Petit Verdot, Cab Franc, Syrah, Petit Syrah. Heck, they can add Sauvignon Blanc there. They can add anything they want. That's going to change the final product of that wine. And that's not going to be on the label most times. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times the consumer will have no idea. It won't be on their website. It won't be on a spec sheet. I feel like I, I see that a lot more with... Um, uh, like maybe a more inexpensive wines, so you won't know the other grapes that are blended in. Once you reach a, cer reach a certain price point, they're proud to call their wine a blend. And like here in Napa, I would say most producers are very open. Like, oh yes, we add a 2% Petit Verdot and 5% Cabernet Franc. But um, that's not necessarily the case for a lot of wines that you might just buy off the shelf in a grocery store. And that's not even just a thing in the United States. I mean, Chianti. Sure. Maddie and I have mentioned Chianti in multiple other episodes of our podcast. Hopefully, you, all of you have heard of Chianti before. It's gone through ups and downs with its reputation, but it makes phenomenal wines. You probably think of Chianti as being Sangiovese grape. That's like the grape, the red grape of Italy. By law, it only has to be 70% in that wine. Mm -hmm. 
and then they can blend in even white varieties in there. Yeah. So it, it, that constitutes it as a blend if it's only 70% Sangiovese. While we're talking about percentages here, too, I think it is important to note on the EU's regulations. That's true. So Ethan just mentioned in the United States, if you decide to put a grape variety on the label, it has to be a minimum of 75% of that grape variety. That's for almost all regions in the States. Of course, there are some differences um, or discrepancies there, primarily in Oregon. They have a little bit stricter laws up there, which we can get into later. But in the European Union, just about every single country has to abide by these laws. And if they choose to put a grape variety on the label, then it has to be a minimum of 85% of that grape variety. So that's interesting. When you're talking about Chianti, they're saying Chianti. They're not saying Sangiovese on a label. It's funny how it works. And some of the most recognizable wines on planet Earth, like Rioja, Champagne, Chateauneuf de Pop, Port, Sauterne, those are all, most of the time, blends. You know, there are exceptions, and there's plenty of wines made in these areas that are 100% variety, except Chateauneuf de Pop that has to be a blend. But most of these are blends, and they have this recognizable name, but there's so many different styles because of the blend. And that also, again, all these labeling laws makes it kind of tricky to, you know, average consumers who don't know what Sauterne is. If it just says Sauterne on the label, what the heck does that mean? Or you see Chablis, like we were talking about earlier. There's all these different appellational rules, whether they have blends or not, because in Europe, a lot of, especially in France, a lot of these individuals don't actually put the grape variety on them. They'll just put the, um, the region, and the region has their own rules, and then they use the grape variety, there's their own rules as well. And, you know, when I first got into wine, I, I didn't understand this. And I was having one champagne that I really liked, and then I was having another champagne that I didn't like. And I was like, they're all champagne. They're sparkling wine. I don't, I don't understand how that's different. But there's huge differences. I don't really remember which ones were which, but there could have been some that were blended of all three of the grapes. Or there could have been one that was just 100% Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And that's why doing more research and diving deeper and understanding these areas and these laws, these regions, can help you understand the styles of wine that you'd like too. But yeah, blends are a very popular thing. So we should talk about how blends got to where they are today let's do it so it really honestly it starts like anything else in this world folks I, I wouldn't say by mistake there's a lot of good mistakes in the wine industry but really through trial and error i mean throughout the past couple centuries winemakers they've been able to learn what grapes blended together creates a more balanced and a better tasting wine also for the most part blends were just acting as insurance policies from Anything that can affect the vineyard from diseases, from war, especially if you're in Europe, the weather. These people have these fields of just vines they've planted, and they're noticing that some are doing well and some are not doing very well. Well, they got to, one, make wine because, again, back in the day, you just had to drink it because you were malnourished and you couldn't drink the water. But they needed to sell it, too. They would have a business off of it. So they would blend these together. And throughout the years, that's been able to evolve. But that's not just how it came to be. It also just happened mm -hmm. where traditionally grapes were just interplanted because people didn't care. It, it wasn't what the wine industry was. Grapes are grapes. Grapes are grapes. You know, this grape might have a different looking leaf. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just trying to make some wine. And a lot of times I'm probably going to eat these grapes as well back in the day. It just happened. Yeah, and Ethan, that kind of brings up another style of wine, too, that you, you see, too. It's, you know, it's these field blends, right? Um, sometimes you might have heard it as, like, mixed blacks. 
And with these, I mean, still to this day, there are a number of producers that make wine and they call it the mixed black or they call it the field blend. Oftentimes these grapes might be, you know, Zinfandel mixed with Petite Syrah, mixed with, I mean... There's Carignan. Carignan, Grenache. I mean, yeah. So there's a, there's definitely like a whole array. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, there's I mean, even like Viognier in these blends as well. Like it just doesn't even, they don't even know. Like even on one row of this vineyard, they're not fully sure. And so they won't even put, you know, the, any grape on the label. They'll just call it mixed blacks or they'll mm-hmm. call it field blend or whatever they want to call it. They make up their own name. But, um, but they're just going to harvest all the, va- the vines and they're going to ferment all that fruit together. And that's definitely going to make the new character of the wine rather than even in fermenting each individual grape variety and then blending post-fermentation, um, which is interesting too. It's funny that you bring that up, Maddie. I, I love that concept of, of mixed blacks and field blends, especially related to like out here with Zinfandel for the longest time, long time ago. People, if they were selling their wine, they would make a field blend and they would just put Zinfandel on the label because Alicante Boucher, Carignan, Petit Sirol, that all kind of looks like Zinfandel. They all kind of taste like Zinfandel. Yeah. So you know what? It's grown with my Zinfandel. I'm just going to throw that in there and guess what it's called? It's called Zinfandel. <laughs> there weren't a lot of rules. Today, there's a lot more rules, um, especially in the old world as well. But there are field blends that still exist in the old world, which is really fun because Wine is such a sophisticated, complex industry now where there's a lot of geography and science and chemistry and business related to it. But there's places that have hold on to these traditions yeah. of these traditional field blends. So like in Vienna, you know, Sound of Music fans, Vienna, they make really good wine there. There is actually a appellation in Vienna for making wine, and it's called Gershmersatz. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. I don't know my German. But this is a field blend that is regulated by law. As in, these grapes have to be grown together, they have to be harvested together, they have to be processed together. Not one of these grapes can take over the blend by 50%. It has to be at least three of them. So they're probably like Trollinger in there, Savanner, Müller-Turgau, Gruner-Veltliner, Riesling. They got a lot of very interesting grapes blended in here to keep that tradition. You know, and I love that. And I think that's so fun because also... Oftentimes as consumers, you know, I've seen this so much just with people coming to visit the winery and doing different tastings and whatnot is they want to know the exact percentage. And it's funny. Sometimes people get very technical with it. They're like, wait, was that 1% Merlot? Was that 2% Merlot? You know, it's like, it, it's almost, I feel like overdone and people think it's, I mean, I, blending definitely makes a big difference and a couple percentage in a wine can make a big difference. However, there's something kind of romantic about the idea of I don't really know what it is, but it's really tasty wine and I'm going to enjoy this. And there's that tradition that's behind it too. And it really just tells a story. Absolutely. And, you know, there's some regions as well that, you know, you would think of as like single variety wines or like growing regions. And we'll get to those as well. But like Alsace, for example, you think of Alsace, it's like 100% variety and all wines are 100% variety, but they actually make blends as well and they are also field blends like it is vicar and gentile portugal i know i mentioned this in other podcast for port there's about 90 different varieties that are permitted into the production of making port those are still field blends as well i th- now i'm just guessing i'm assuming it's just a little difficult to replant everything to one variety but so they just kind of kept it the way it is but those traditions still exist but blending really didn't become blending intentionally intentionally until really the 1800s with bordeaux and we'll get to that in just a moment but didn't really take off on like a global market especially not here in the united states until the 2000s 
Yeah, Ethan, it was really in the early 2000s that you started seeing the entire red blend category and that you would just see red blend on the label and it was its own wine style, just as if you were to call a wine a Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, this was its own category. And, you know, there was one producer in particular that I really, that comes to mind when I think of a red blend, and that's Menage a Trois, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Absolutely. it initially started as a blend of three grapes, right? A little bit more approachable in style. And boom, that took off. And now that, along with so many other producers, are making this red blend style. And I always, you know, I kind of in the back of my head kind of chuckle every time somebody tells me, you know, you know, I'm asking them, what style of wine do you typically prefer? Like, oh, I love red blends. Because in reality... Most red wines are indeed a blend of some sort, like Ethan was stating at the very beginning of this podcast, right? I mean, like we said, a Cabernet here in Napa Valley could very well be blended with 25% other red grapes, right? Or maybe even not red grapes. Who the heck knows? But also, if you have a red blend that, you know, maybe it's with Zinfandel, Syrah, and Cabernet Sauvignon, what if you had a red blend that was Pinot Noir and Sangiovese? Well, that could be kind of weird, but like totally different in style versus the, you know, the one I said it stated prior. So the category is huge. Obviously, if you buy a red blend and it's, you know, around the same price point, um, it's going to be more approachable in style, maybe a little bit more generous, generous with the aromas. But then you also have the wines here in Napa that are just called red wine. Shoot, they can charge like seven hundred plus dollars for more that. Expensive, right? <laughs> um, and again, the reason they're called red wine is because they do have more flexibility with what they blend in that wine, and they don't have to worry about changing the label with the TTB year after year. If they end up, you know what, this year I want to add a little bit more Cabernet Franc. Ah, I'm not going to have seventy five percent Cab. I'm going to be at like seventy two percent. Well, they don't have to take Cabernet off the label. It's just a red wine. In the United States, there's a lot of truth in labeling. So you have to put what the wine is. You have to describe the wine, or you can put the variety. But if you put the variety, again, then it has to be at least 75% of that variety in the United States. This is a funny thing, Maddie. I can have a wine that's 50% Cab, 50% Merlot. I can't call it Cab. Mm-mm. I'd have to define it as Red Blend. I can have a wine that's 100% Cab. I can call it Red Wine. I could even call it red blend if I want to. Yeah. It's interesting. It is. Keep that in mind, folks. Yeah. You don't really know what you're drinking out there. Got to do more research. <laughs> but as long as you like it, that's all that matters. That's true. That's true. Okay. So, Ethan, there's a lot of us just talking here. Let's, we're going to do some more talking here. But <laughs> play um, music if you want. <laughs> that's true. Uh, no. Okay. So, I want to talk about, um, let's talk about France. Obviously, when we talk about, wine history, wine trends, and whatnot. We have to look to who's been doing this the longest. And of course, France is right up there with the best of them. Um, I think there's a great example of a region that always blends and a region that never blends. So maybe we can talk about um, the, the reasons that each has for their winemaking styles. Absolutely. So I know what you're referencing, Bordeaux versus Burgundy. Same exact country. They speak the same language. And they're completely different in culture and ideology and winemaking, 100% different. So you think of Bordeaux, and many of you probably know this, but those who don't, hope you learned something from this. Bordeaux is 99.9% of the time. It's going to be a blend. You know, they could release single variety ones, but their history is based off of blending. And this is really based off the climate and the weather they deal with in Bordeaux. I mean, it has a very long history of winemaking. The weather there, it's not nearly as good as it is in California. So it takes a lot of skill, really, to make a excellent 
and a really well-balanced wine in Bordeaux because of this. They deal with late rains and hail and frost, and there's a lot of microclimates within Bordeaux with different soil composition. So throughout trial and error, throughout the last five, six centuries, who knows how long, they've been able to discover which grapes grow better and which ones blended into each other can create a higher quality beverage. Exactly, Ethan. And I like to think of it as kind of like the sum is greater than its parts, right? We've all heard that phrase before, but I think it fits perfectly into the idea of a Bordeaux red wine. Because, you know, you, of course you can have 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, and I'm sure there are some producers that do so in Bordeaux. But, you know, maybe, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon on its own, you're going to get a lot of dark fruit. Uh, maybe you get a little of pyrazine in there, maybe a green bell pepper, uh, some pretty strong tannins as Absolutely. well which can be great, but you know, maybe you want to soften it, make it a little bit more approachable. It's all black fruit right now. Let's add, let's add in a little bit of Merlot. That adds a nice like plushness to this wine, some silky, some smooth tannins, maybe, maybe even like some red plum or some nice raspberry in the wine. So you want to add a little bit of Cabernet Franc in there too. Adds a nice little herbal characteristic. Here, you're just adding more complexity to the wine, but also like you said too, it really helps the vintage variation. So if you had a block of, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon that wasn't looking too great this year, like maybe the fruit set wasn't on point. Well, now you have other grapes too to like lean on for this vintage. So it's not uncommon for this blend to fluctuate year in and year out. And I think that's, you know, that's a model that we've kind of brought to Napa Valley too. That's why we have these Bordeaux grape varieties that we really focus on. Absolutely. And Bordeaux wines, as great as they are, they are a reflection of the vintage the growing season, but they are a true reflection of the skill of the producer mm -hmm. putting these blends together. Some have created house styles. Some of them change them up pretty regularly, but then we go East and we're still in the same country. We go to Burgundy yeah. and the wines made in Burgundy just as great. So different. And as I mentioned, the ideologies with winemaking is night and day compared to Bordeaux. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and what Ethan's referring to here and, you know, Burgundy as far as the grape varieties, we don't have that many to remember here. Primarily, it's Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And if you find a Chardonnay, it's going to be 100% Chardonnay. If you have a Pinot Noir, it's going to be 100% Pinot Noir. But Maddie, what about Aligote? Okay, so yes, we have Aligote, we have <laughs> Gamay, so we don't leave those two little guys out. But, um, but no, and the one thing about that is that it really, truly expresses the terroir. Whereas Bordeaux is more typically estate-focused or chateau-focused, so the producer, like Ethan just mentioned, Burgundy is all about the land. And they are definitely, they definitely take very much pride in this too. And I think Chardonnay Pinot, especially Pinot Noir, is a true expression of the land. I've heard it from countless winemakers and vineyard workers that Pinot Noir is an extremely finicky grape and is very hard to grow. However, when it's done right, and it is 100% Pinot Noir in that glass, especially from Burgundy, man, do you have some beautiful wines. It's like this delicate little princess, you know? It needs to be put on its own pedestal. It can't have too much of anything affecting it, but it's beautiful and it's elegant, but it's finicky. It, it is. really is finicky. And when you have a Pinot that's blended, it doesn't taste like Pinot anymore. No, because it's going to get overpowered. It's it's so light, so delicate. The skins are so thin. that You blend it with anything and you're going to lose that Pinot character. Absolutely. And also, Ethan, one thing that is, you know, maybe... Maybe more of like a, a con for this um, that Burgundy has to deal with year in and year out. Whereas Bordeaux, if they have a poor vintage or they have some sites that aren't performing extremely well in one year, they have other great varieties or other vineyard sites to lean on. However, Burgundy also experiences 
really bad frost many times. And heck, this past year, I know some places like Chablis even had some frost issues. Yeah. They don't have other grapes necessarily to lean on. Of course, they can potentially source fruit from other parts of the region, but chances are those are already taken and they're going to be really expensive otherwise too. But even, even still, when you find Pinot Noir here in the States, if you go to really renowned regions such as, you know, the Willamette up in Oregon or, you know, here in, you know, California in Sonoma County, maybe right along the West Sonoma coast, chances are those are hundred percent Pinot Noir. And the second that you blend anything, it's going to change it. And that's one of the reasons that Oregon has actually become very strict with their labeling laws. Yeah. For many of their grape varieties, they have higher minimums for those grape varieties. I believe it's at 90% for most grape varieties. I was told in the future, it could even go to 100%. That's wild. Yeah. So other regions around the world of some famous wines that are typically 100% variety because the grape shows better when it's by itself. German Riesling is one. Sure. Uh, in Alsace, their winemaking, even again in France, their whole ideology is doing 100% variety wines as well, whether it's Gewürztraminer, whether it's Pinot Gris. Chardonnay, another great example. Most Chardonnays you're going to find around the world are going to be single variety Chardonnays. Again, folks, there's anomalies here. There's some that are blended with other grapes and whatnot. One you hear a lot about, one Maddie and I are huge fans of, Sauvignon Blanc, believe it or not, can also be blended. And you can find that in places like Bordeaux as well. Yeah, here in Napa too. Yeah, and Napa. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really unique part about this industry, which makes it fun. And going back to what we were talking at the beginning about tasting more, is that you might love Cab. You might love a Cab that's been blended with 20% Syrah. Go try a Cab that's blended with 20% Merlot and still see if you like it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many different variations of wines same styles from the same areas that are so different because of this. But now blending has evolved. It's not just blending grapes. It's blending from different vineyard sites. It's blending from using different yeast strains, from different barrels. Exactly. And I think, honestly, with all this being said, I mean, I think it's, it's really, it really is great to show the terroir of a you know, piece of land. Um, and, of course, it depends on the style of wine that you're making. But I think there is so much to be said about the winemaker and all of the work that they're doing and blending. Because, I mean, I've, I've sat in the cellar before with winemakers and seen them try to blend together. And you're sitting in there with hundreds of barrels of different grapes, some of which, you know, maybe it's all Cabernet. It's all from one vineyard. But they were picked in different lots. And now they're being aged in different barrels at different toast levels made by different cooperages. And now you're trying to piece all of this together. I mean, for some, some wineries, they don't have a choice and they have to make one wine. So they're just going to blend it together no matter what. Exactly. But for some, they're making a specific style and they're not going to use everything in there for this wine. And I think that's really when the true craft of winemaking is revealed. You know, Maddie, I agree. That's pretty awesome. Do you know what's even more awesome? Your nightcap for today. Yes. Uh, it's not just a one-time deal, Ethan. This has become uh, not a habit, but um, definitely something that I do enjoy um, on a... <laughs> fairly regular basis, I guess you could say. And that is red vermouth on the rocks or Rosso vermouth. Oh. Um, so yeah, so I think oftentimes, I think we're starting to see a little bit of a renaissance in the vermouth culture. Um, I think oftentimes it was that dusty bottle in your grandparents' cellar that they would, you know, occasionally would bring out to put a splash in a martini, right? And then everyone's like, no, I want a dry martini. Um, well, of course I just said Rosso vermouth. So I, of course I, I really do like 
white vermouth as well. And there's a time and a place for that. We've been serving a lot of that here at the winery, but I've been getting really into red vermouth and not mixed in with a Manhattan necessarily. Although I do love a good Negroni. Now I've decided I just really like this vermouth on the rocks by itself. And this is really inspired by actually one of our fellow listeners, Nicole. And Nicole lives in Spain and she was opening my eyes to really the vermouth culture. And, you know, specifically in places like Barcelona to start your evening at a vermouth bar. Apparently these mm. bars are popping up right and left and you go and you enjoy vermouth and it's always red vermouth is what they're serving. And it's always with salty snacks, whether that's, you know, some cheeses or olives, potato chips, um, it's with salty snacks. And then maybe you go to vermouth bar for a couple hours, then you can progress and go to your tapas bar. And then you have, you know, dinner at what, like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. And then of course the discotheque is still at 4am or so. Um, I'm not doing all of that. That is not a frequent habit of mine right now. However, <laughs> Most places close at like nine o'clock in this town anyway, Maddie, so you couldn't do it if you wanted to. <laughs> That's true. Uh, maybe I'll start a trend here on Napa. Okay. Um, but no, what I like to do, especially when I get home from work, maybe I'm just tired. I'm normally pretty darn hungry by the time I get home and I've got to cook dinner. But a little splash of that rosa vermouth on the rocks and I've got a, I've got an olive lady at the farmer's market, have some olives. I always have one of those, you know, small little cheese guys at Whole Foods. They have an extra basket of cheese. Um, try new cheese every time with it. Oh my goodness, Ethan. I've tried a few different Rosa Vermouth. Um, the Trincari one is delicious. It's an old recipe that dates back to the 1800s. Um, it's a Piedmont style uh, vermouth, but there's a couple other really nice ones that I've had. And not all of them are super, super sweet. I know there's some out there that are like kind of just sweet vanilla, which, you know, that's great too. I think I prefer those in a Manhattan, but some of the ones that are maybe a little bit more you know, a little bit more kind of like tertiary, like herbal kind of mm -hmm. styles, maybe even like that orange quality in there as well. Um, it's super refreshing. It goes wonderfully with anything salty and, uh, y'all need to give that a go if you have not already. You know, Maddie, I'm going to get a bottle tonight. You've influenced Please me. Please do. You yes. Know, I've got a couple in my fridge. You're sipping on sweet vermouth or rosa vermouth by itself. I'm sipping on gin by itself. We just need a third person to be sipping on Campari by itself. And we have a deconstructed Negroti as a team here. That's right. So we are on the hunt. If anybody wants to be our third member, please let us know. We hope you all enjoyed another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. Maddie, thank you for that. That was awesome. Absolutely. Thank you all. We'll see you next time.